Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. We're heading into a big weekend, folks. That's right. It is the Mug Smashers at home. Arsenal have been on a brilliant run. You can't argue with 22 points from 24, but it's also fair to say that the opposition that we've faced have not been the same caliber as the opposition we're going to face this weekend or the opposition that we faced at the start of the season when we uh, played Manchester City and Chelsea and lost both of those games. So how we fare against Jurgen Klopp's side will give us a bit more insight into the work that Unai Emery is doing. We are going to talk about this game in a lot more detail. In a little while, we're going to talk to our friend Anton Svenbjörsson, who's at Anton Stottle on Twitter. He is, of course, a Liverpool fan, and we'll be talking to him about uh, their season, about the threats uh, coming from that side of things and what he thinks of what's going on at Arsenal. And in a couple of minutes' time, I will be chatting to Daniel Storey, again about the Liverpool game, the Aaron Ramsey situation, how Unai Emery is uh, using his strikers, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and Alexandre Lacazette, and how he might deploy them in this particular game, and lots more besides, Uh, so stick around for that. Just to uh, touch very briefly on the week that was, we played in the Carabao Cup on Wednesday night, a very heavily rotated side, beat Blackpool two goals to one at the Emirates on Wednesday night. Not the most memorable cup tie you'll ever see in your life. Some of that, of course, was because of the team that we selected with uh, more than half an eye on Liverpool. I'd say at least seven-eighths of an eye, if not an entire eye, and maybe an eye and two-fifths, just to to be really sure about uh, what we're doing this weekend. Um, The goals... Stefan Lichtsteiner scoring his first Arsenal goal. Matteo Genduzzi with the with the assist. And then Emile Smith-Rowe getting his second Arsenal goal. He got one away in Europe, didn't he? But uh, this was his first goal at the Emirates and, uh, you know, justifying his selection and all that kind of stuff. I think he played pretty well, all things considered. And those all things can uh, concern a number of senior players who didn't necessarily play that well. Blackpool got a goal back after we had Genduzzi sent off. I thought the second yellow card was probably a yellow card, but I thought the first one was harsh. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't anything really crazy from, from Genduzzi. He is banned for this weekend, though. He would have played a part, at least from the bench, in Saturday's game. He would give us a, an energetic option from the bench. 
But of course, much depends on what Unai Emery has available to him in defence. We have worries as it stands over Hector Bellerin. We have worries over Nacho Monreal and Said Kolasinac. So we may not have a left back and we may have a a 34-year-old right back against a team like Liverpool with Mane, Firmino, uh, Salah. I mean, I know Halloween is gone and everything else, but it would be truly frightening for Granit Xhaka to be facing Mo Salah at left back. I think generally he's done okay there, considering he's not a left back at all. But we saw what can happen when you're not given the right protection or when you're left exposed in that position. And that was the penalty that, that Palace won on uh, on Sunday. Zaha winning the penalty and, um, yeah, costing us two points. Not that it was all Xhaka's fault. It was uh, a string of errors, I think you might say, in that regard. But look, let's get on with the show. We can talk more about Liverpool. We can talk more about what's been going on at Arsenal. And I'm uh, delighted to welcome back to the show, no longer from Football 365, but freelancing and doing some work for them along the way. Uh, it's Daniel Story. Hi, Daniel. Hi there, you're all right. I am fine. I want to ask you first and foremost about the uh, the start that Unai Emery has made at Arsenal. We did speak to you um, at the start of the season or towards the start of the season. Um, having seen the first uh, three months, I guess, of, of life at Arsenal under Unai Emery, what are your initial thoughts? I've been impressed actually. I think it's fair to say that Arsenal have, have beat other than last weekend have beaten the teams they're better than and and lost the teams they're worse than, albeit very early on in Emery's reign, which gave him a, a deserved free pass, I think, for those two defeats. Um I think there are still problems that we wouldn't necessarily call teething problems because they've been there for so long before. Unai Emery um, and I think it would be ridiculous to have expected him to have done anything other than baby steps forward f- with those problems but he does seem to have have instilled this m- new morale within the players there does seem to be a greater attacking fluency particularly away from home and and I think this whole this whole we have our Arsenal back debate um there is clearly a feeling within the supporters that travel away from home that got pretty pig sick last season and to an extent the season before with with the away not just the away results but mm. the, the kind of limp away performances that that there is a change there i i don't think that's unfair the 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 problems i guess that you refer to are defensive uh yeah, as, absolutely as yeah. much as anything and it was it was interesting i was on um i was on a liverpool podcast earlier this week, um, the Anfield Index, and we were talking about uh, the game coming up, which we will talk about in, in a little bit. But, there, you know, they're three years in or three and a half years into Jurgen Klopp. And it's not that he's only getting the defence right now, but it's, it's maybe a case that it has taken him this long to get it where he wants to be. So you look at the goals conceded, Liverpool have conceded only four this season. Manchester City have only conceded three. Arsenal have conceded 13, albeit five of them coming in those in those first two games. But if you have watched uh, Arsenal this season, you will be, I guess, aware that potentially we could have conceded more goals than the 13 we have let in in the Premier League because of the chances that the opposition have had. Um 
baby steps, I think, is is the right way to say it, with Lucas Torreira coming into the team and adding a bit more uh, defensive security uh, from midfield anyway. But it is going to take him time, isn't it? As frustrating as it might be to see familiar defensive failings, you know, he, he really does need at least a couple of transfer windows in order to get this area of the team the way he wants it. Yeah, he does. And and it, it might even take more than that. I mm. think when we spoke before at the start of the season, we talked about Liverpool because Jurgen Klopp, for a period of time in charge there, was asked to improve what he had. But it became pretty clear pretty quickly that he was going to need a great deal more than that, that he was not, you know, he was not going to be able to turn water into wine. And to an extent, I think that is what you know, Emery might be expected to do because Arsenal don't have the financial capabilities of, of Manchester City uh, or Manchester United. Uh, and Liverpool have made some, you know, some pretty obvious and pretty significant moves in the transfer market that I don't think Arsenal will be able to match them on in terms of transfer fees. And uh, and that's not, you know, Emery's fault. Uh, he is being asked more, than, I think, than Jurgen Klopp, certainly more than Pep Guardiola, both of whom are coaches who have the ability to improve players. But I think Unai Emery is being relied upon to do that more than they are. Um, I think he has far fewer get-outs that if if a signing doesn't work out, there isn't the option to go and replace them very quickly. And and Shkodran Mustafi is a very, you know, the most obvious example of that as a as the most expensive defensive player in Arsenal's history. Uh, and to my mind, as a kind of neutral observer, it's not working out. And I don't, I don't think it ever will for him at Arsenal. But um, Emery is kind of having, he doesn't really have a choice, Booth, because of injuries and because of fewer options at the club. Yeah, He doesn't really have an option other than to kind of persevere with someone like Mustafi. Well, I think we're, we're seeing something interesting maybe this weekend because he played Mustafi in the, the Carabao Cup against Blackpool on Wednesday night and left Rob Holding on the bench and there was no sign of Socrates. So I think perhaps what happened at at Crystal Palace might, if not necessarily been the last straw when it comes to Mustafi, it might well have just made Emery's mind up in terms of where he sits in the pecking order at Arsenal right now based on the players that we have available. So Lauren Koscielny is still to come back from his injury. It remains to be seen how... Uh, you know, how he's going to perform at 33 years of age, having ruptured his Achilles tendon. It's a fairly traumatic injury at the best of times. And when you're in the, the September of your career, it's it's even more so. Uh, so, you know, personnel-wise, I, I think it is a, it's a big problem for Arsenal, just generally uh, in terms of quality. But I think I think that's, that's something that perhaps, if not a light at the end of the tunnel for people who, like me and I think you, believe that Mustafi is not going to be the guy who will anchor uh, a solid Arsenal defence if he has made enough mistakes for him to be considered uh, at least for this moment in time uh, uh, the backup to the Premier League defenders then it gives the others a chance to to stake their claim yeah and and one of the criticisms of of Arsene Wenger's final probably two years in charge and, and the fault doesn't necessarily lie with him is that um, the the fringe players that were given a chance to come into the team, not necessarily the young players, but the, the fringe players, uh, those that had been pushed out by new signings perhaps, didn't really take their chance. Um, and the idea that having a bigger squad provides extra competition for places is, I think, true. But there's also a danger that that it kind of brings a general malaise from those who sit outside the first team, that when they do get a chance, they don't really step up. Um 
I think potentially Rob Holding is 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 hopefully an exception to that. He 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 did well last season, far better than I thought he would do when called upon. And and if he does take Mustafi's place, you know, it, it must be said it's as much to do with Mustafi's failings as as Holding's strengths. But he's a young player who hopefully can can start to seize that opportunity because, as I say, it does feel like there's a different mood with Emery in charge where people. <laughs> players coming into a team don't feel like they're kind of fighting this tide of yeah. of poor form and fighting this tide of 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 calamity that that almost becomes self-fulfilling. I wonder as a manager do you uh, look at a 26-year-old defender uh, <laughs> sort of like Mustafi and see him make the same mistakes again and again or make the same decisions again and again. You know, I mean it's not as if Mustafi is absolutely terrible uh, for 90 minutes week in, week out. You know, the the issue with Mustafi for me is that he can be quite fine and actually quite effective at times and does have qualities, but these lapses in concentration and these uh, decisions that he makes very often prove costly for Arsenal. And when you're a manager, do you look at a guy who's 26 and think, okay, if at this point in his career, having had the benefit of advice and coaching from the German national team from his time in Italy, from his time in Valencia, at Arsenal, whether you think Arsene Wenger was a good defensive coach or not, you know, Steve Bold was the assistant manager who was one of the greatest centre-halves in Arsenal's history. It's impossible not to think that Steve Bold at some point didn't take Mustafi aside and, and say, hey, look, stop doing that. Stop sliding in. Stop going off your feet in dangerous areas. You know, be aware, all, all that kind of stuff. And then when you've got a 22-year-old like Rob Holding, who, in terms of his performances this season, has been no, certainly no worse than Mustafi, and you might uh, argue that he has been better and more consistent because he hasn't made the same level of mistakes. Do you then make a decision? You go, okay, I've got more to work with. I can mould the 22-year-old more easily than I can the the 26-year-old. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, I think as well as age, it comes down to personality. But Mm. there's no doubt that during Wenger's final months, perhaps even years, but certainly months in charge, the, the accusation was that um, not the players weren't being coached properly, but that the, the improvement in players was slowing down um, in training and that um, Wenger or the team around him had kind of lost the knack and the ability to to make players into a you know greater than the sum of their component parts. Um, with Mustafi, that did allow him, I think, probably did allow him a, um, a stay of execution at the start of this season in, in so much as I think every player probably had a clean slate under Unai Emery. And, and at that point, I think it was logical to pick the, the you know, the German international, the £35 million signing. But but yes, there comes a time when you have to think, well, actually, hang on a minute. Um, if I continue, not only if I continue with this player, do I, um, do I risk Arsenal being exposed and particularly in games against teams like Liverpool who will expose defensive flaws? But also, what kind of message does does it send to a young player if, if week after week a player is making the same mistakes and yet I'm keeping the faith with him? It, it, it almost demotivates Rob Holding as well as causing immediate issues in the first team. So, yeah, I think it's the right move, I have to say. Mm. Well, look, like we said, he's going to need a couple of transfer windows at least to get the defenders in that he needs. And it's not just at centre-half either. 
Um, but, you know, that's a, a discussion we can have maybe in January again and, uh, and next summer. But I want to ask you about Aaron Ramsey and the, the contract situation that he's found himself in or that he's allowed to happen or that Arsenal have allowed to happen. It's, uh, it's not simply a question of it being one party uh, at play here. You know, it does take two to tango when it comes to, to signing a new deal. But I, I thought it very interesting that the new head of football, Ralph and yeah, he... Uh, spoke quite candidly about how uh, contract management was something that they're going to have to improve on, that they have to make a decision on a player when there's two years left on his contract, not when there's one year left or 18 months left. They have to judge a situation and think, is this player going to sign? Will he stay with us? Can we get him to extend his deal? If they have doubts over that, maybe they have to go in a different direction. Um, whereas Ramsey and Danny Welbeck and Nacho Monreal and Petr Cech follow in the footsteps of Theo Walcott in recent times, Mesut Ozil, Alexis mm-hmm. Sanchez, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, Jack Wilshire, all players who have uh, gone into the final 12 months of their contract. Um, and whatever way you want to dress it up and however you want to rationalize those situations on a collective basis or an individual basis, it's not a good way for a football club to run, particularly when you're you're in a situation where you have to spend or the only money you have to spend is the money you generate yourself. And that's the case with Arsenal, despite the uh, KSE taking over. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I, I do feel for, for Aaron Ramsey in the sense that I think he, in some very vague ethereal way. He, he represents the old Arsenal, the Arsene Wenger Arsenal, which mm. actually does him a disservice because for, for a, you know, there are some seasons when actually he was the exception to the rule, um, particularly in, in big games. And I'm obviously thinking of, of FA Cup finals and FA Cup semi-finals where he was a team, he was a player that dragged the team on. Um, I, I actually think in this individual situation, it probably comes down to, to Meza Ozil in that, uh, both in terms of the money that Arsenal you know, have, have laid out on, on Ozil's contract and the faith that they've put him in him, and but also Mesut's role in the team. I think as soon as Ozil had signed that contract and had kind of made noises and the club had made noises that they, they, they saw him as this, you know, this 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 number ten creator behind Lacazette and Aubameyang, kind of dovetailing around. I think it made it very difficult for for Aaron to to keep a natural place in that team because, you know, he he played on the the right or the left of a, of a four three three under Wenger mm. at times. It was kind of farmed out of position a little bit. I, I don't think the, the defensively Arsenal is strong enough in central defence or centre midfield to have him as one of the two midfielders in a four two three one. And that again, that's not Aaron's fault. That's that's kind of the deficiencies and the flaws in those around him. But because of that, it kind of doesn't lead a very natural place for him in the starting team. And and that's a very difficult platform from which to lay out a huge amount of faith and money mm. on, an, on another big deal. Mm. I mean, is it a case, well, I certainly think it's a case that a decision should have been made on his future long before now. Uh, yes. And that, you know, people say, well, you can't just sell a player. You know, you can't just, put them up for uh, for transfer and hope that it'll happen, you know, but we all know that there are ways and means of moving players on. If you've, if you've made that decision, they seem to have gambled on him wanting to stay, which perhaps he did. 
but since the departure of uh, Ivan Gazidis or the the installation of Raul Sanyehi, Sven Mislintat, maybe Unai Emery to a certain extent, you know, Emery made him one of his captains. So, mm. you know, it is it's a it's a weird situation for him to be in and for for it to play out so publicly. I think um one of the things that's overlooked here maybe is the role of the Ramsey camp and by that I mean the agent um in whose interest it has been to put stuff out into the public domain whereas Arsenal as we like to know or as we all know like to keep things fairly close to their chests. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Your listeners and you might not um, particularly enjoy the comparison, but Tottenham are a team that are in some flux at the moment. But they're also a club that managed to get contract negotiations not just um, not just agreed and you know thrashed out, but also announced very very smoothly and very quickly and without much say so. Basically, you get a story between two weeks and a month before the deal's done from a reporter who says Tottenham are talking to. And then two, three weeks later, you get the announcement that the deal's done and you generally get Mauricio Pochettino stood there or sat there with his arm around them and mm. both smiling and that's deal done. Arsenal have kind of become the opposite of that culture, really. And, it, and that's not a compliment. Um, everything, as you say, seems to be, because the club are so um, determined to keep things quiet, it almost fuels or um, persuades agents and players to to do the talking for them and that leads to the club not being able to control the news story and not being able to control the information flow and that's that's not a good thing because it makes it look like they're not in control in general in the negotiations I mean, yeah, I mean, in, in mitigation, before we got too nice about Tottenham here, they do, <laughs> they do have a situation with Alderweireld. Yes. Ericsson is heading towards the end of his contract as well. You know, with everything else that's going on, it, it might be difficult for them to tie down some, some of those players. But I mean, just broadening it, do you feel like that is uh, an issue that is becoming more and more prevalent for Premier League clubs? I remember fairly clearly Arsene Wenger talking about it 18 months ago more or less saying that more and more players will go into the final 12 months of their contract and there is that part or there was that part of the reaction to it from the wider football community that says well Arsene Wenger is only saying that because you know he's presiding over a situation or a number of situations like this at Arsenal but uh, to be fair to him, it is playing out, not just at Arsenal, but at Tottenham, also Manchester United, you know, David De Gea, you know, a high-profile player, and there are some others there as well who are heading in that direction. So is, is it something that um, as transfer fees get bigger and bigger and less and less affordable, let's be realistic about this, however much money there is sloshing around in the game and, and however much money there is um, coming in from broadcasting and what have you, a player available for free is far better value than any transfer fee you're going to pay. Yeah, absolutely. And and more than ever before and increasingly year on year, players are um, aware of their value, um, both in terms of their value to a team and and their you know their their marketing brands and they are if not aware they are very well kept informed by agents who there are some great agents out there that look out for the best deal for a player there also are agents who look to maximize profit on you know to any degree and whether that's a player running down the contract whether that's a player alienating them within a club because they can do that players are increasingly prepared to do that they 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 understand their value and they also understand their growing power um, they understand that 
if they can control the story, if they can control the information flow to the media, that transfer stories and contract stories are bigger business than they've ever been before. And mm. that, that only pushes the power closer to them. And um, I, I do think Arsene Wenger is right. I think there are very few clubs in the world now, and there are fewer each year, who can who can sit above this kind of um, this shark-infested pool. And, and the only thing that allows clubs to do that is having a, a whacking amount of money in which... Um, and as I say, you know, clubs like Arsenal simply aren't able to cope with that anymore. And it, 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 it takes very clever management. It takes a club um, being seen to move in the right direction. And I do believe Arsenal are that now. Um, I, I, I suspect that things like the Ramsey deal and, and obviously, you know, Oxlade Chamberlain, the others you mentioned, they came as a result of, of, of an Arsenal that were heading in the wrong direction. Yeah. Um, I think Aaron Ramsey, to an extent, is a hangover of that. I do believe and I hope that Arsenal are addressing that and that they are starting to, you know, to to move away from the bottom of the, you know, the nadir of where they got to. And, and as they move in the right direction, I do believe that things will improve. But it's a it's a long task. And, and the David De Gea example is, 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 you know, is absolutely spot on because, very quickly, um, a player can become disillusioned. A player that was highly motivated to stay at a club can become pretty disillusioned. Mm. Look, moving away from transfers, because we've got January to come and we can revisit this uh, and uh, <laughs> and next summer, and we know how much everybody loves to win the transfer trophy, uh, even if that might change over, over the coming years in terms of what we spend. Let's get back to, to what's happening on the pitch at Arsenal. You say, and quite rightly, I agree with you, Arsenal have beaten who they should have beaten this season. They've beaten the teams that they're supposedly better than. Um, mm-hmm. And for me, you know, people have said, well, okay, you've done very well. You've taken 22 points from 24, but you haven't played anybody good. And I'll hold my hands up and say, yeah, maybe that's true. You still have to go out there and get the results. You still have to, you know, if the expectation is go beat those teams and you go beat those teams, I don't see what the problem is. But it's also true to say, that Saturday's game against Liverpool will be the first, not real test, but it will be a real marker or a way for us to gauge the process or the progress rather that Unai Emery process. Unai Emery says process all the time, so it's in, <laughs> in my head every time uh, I use his name. The progress that that we've made since the Chelsea game and the Manchester City game. Uh, you know, Liverpool are a fantastic side this season. Not only are they very threatening from an attacking point of view, they've finally discovered how to defend. Uh, mm. They've got a good goalkeeper. They've got a good, uh, you know, a good guy who who dominates the centre of their defence. Uh, it's going to be very difficult for Arsenal uh, on Saturday at the Emirates. Um, how do you see you and I, Emery, approaching this one, given that it is a home game as well? Yeah. I actually, and <laughs> I don't want to be the bearer of bad predictions, but um, yeah, I think I think Liverpool are probably the worst team for Arsenal to play. Not you know, not not necessarily now, but just in general. Um, when when Pep Guardiola took Manchester City to, to Anfield and, and drew nil nil, he was asked after the game about their style, and he said, "Look, if you go to if you play against Liverpool uh, and you try and attack them, if you play expansively, then." they'll kill you you know mm. you're looking you're looking for the one percent that's the phrase he used and uh the problem for Unai Emery is that Arsenal as they are in this kind of formative stage under his management they they don't really know any other way of playing than to attack they've become I think I, I 
I, I called them earlier in the season. It wasn't entirely complimentary, but I called them the accidental entertainers in that they have become that at the moment. You know, they've kept few fewer clean sheets than Emery would like, but they've scored more goals than anyone would have expected. But Liverpool are, are the worst team to do that against. I, I honestly believe that. With 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 the defensive problems that Arsenal have anyway, and the injury concerns. Um, particularly at left back, where Mo Salah will look up to kind of latch onto whoever is playing in that position. Mm. It is going to be very, very hard. Uh, I think Emery either, in my mind, either has to go one, one of two ways and has to go to one of two extremes. He either has to say, right, okay, let's try a makeshift, um, you know, a version of the Manchester City style of let's try and shut up shop a bit and hit them on the counter, or he has to fully embrace how Arsenal of, you know, the the Arsenal of of Cardiff City in, in September of let's just go at teams and yes, we will concede, but let's hope we score more than them. And that will either go very well or it'll be, you know, it'll become very messy very quickly. The His other issue is that they're not doing this at Anfield. I think at Anfield, they could afford to throw caution to the wind and say, look, if we sit back, we'll get beaten. So at home, at home, that becomes slightly more politically difficult, I think, because if Arsenal concede two or three in the first half and are embarrassed, it will become a mood of, you know, of of humiliation, which is 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 absolutely the one thing that Emery wants to avoid. Yeah, I, I suppose you know when it comes to goals scoring, Arsenal are four ahead of Liverpool this season. For all the talk about mm-hmm. the Liverpool front three, and that's not to to uh, talk them down in any way, because uh, the prospect of them going at a uh, an Arsenal without a recognised left back and potentially without Hector Bellerin uh, at mm-hmm. right back as well is quite terrifying, really. Uh, but Arsenal do have goals in them: uh, Alexandre Lacazette, uh, Pierre Emerick Aubameyang. I'm I'm curious as to what you make of the Aubameyang situation because Arsenal spent £55 million on one of the most prolific centre-forwards in Europe over the last number of seasons. Uh, Borussia Dortmund, that's where he played. At Arsenal, yeah. he's barely played there at all, uh, yeah. either under Wenger or under Unai Emery. Yet, his goal-scoring contributions have been amazing or his involvement, not just in goal-scoring, but in, in goal-creation, uh, you know... It, He's got some incredible stats since he joined the club in mm. January. Does that in some way justify the managers, the two managers' decision to play him more often from the left? Or is it more a testament to his overall quality that he can still produce when being played out of position? Yeah, I, th- I think it's the latter. I think it, he, I've seen a side to, you know, I didn't watch Borussia Dortmund every week, but I've seen a side to, to Aubameyang that I didn't, uh, think was there certainly not at the age of, of 29 um, he has adapted his game I say he's adapted his game I actually don't think he has I think he's play, He's almost playing as bizarre as it sounds as a, as a kind of a, a central striker role but out wide he, he hasn't adapted his game he's made the position fit his game which is mm. is really extraordinary at, at his age in a new league at a new club with it, with a huge amount of upheaval during his first year there um, yeah, I think he's been he's been he's been far and away better than I thought he would be. I, I slightly ironically, perhaps, I think this is the one game where him on the left really does make a great deal of sense because if there is a weakness in Liverpool at the moment, it has Trent Alexander Arnold has been fantastic since he's got it back into the into the team, but he has as as is wholly natural for a young fullback, he has made mistakes. Um and I think if, if Arsenal are gonna get any joy, it probably will be down there. Um, I think the the right hand side, whoever plays there, um, will 
their principal role will be trying to stop Andrew Robertson getting us forward as quickly as he can. Um, on the left, it's a little bit different. That's the one area I think Arsenal can look for a weakness. But but no, to answer your question, I've been hugely impressed by Obama Young. Um, I, I, it was obvious he was going to have to hit the ground running at the age he was for the transfer fee Arsenal had paid. But yeah. um, but he's done that. <laughs> he started at sprinting speed and he's carried on at that sprinting speed. He's been he's been absolutely excellent. It is it is a conundrum for Emery though because Lacazette has played his way into the team. Uh, he looks a more confident, a more rounded, a more uh, a stronger player than he was last season. I even spoke about it. I think last week, saying it was frustrating being taken off at sixty minutes all the time because as a striker, if you get chances against tiring legs as a defender, you know it's it's it just gives you that little one or two percent that makes it not necessarily easy to score a goal, but easier or chances come along a, a bit more easily in the final. 20 minutes of games and he didn't really get that to an extent but he has played well and beyond a system which involves playing two strikers which Emery did at Fulham in a way with uh, with, with a Danny Welbeck and Lacazette starting up front there um, he kind of has to play Aubameyang on the left because Lacazette can't play in one of the wide positions. So he, he is in some way banking on the quality of, of Aubameyang to overcome the fact that playing out there makes his involvement in the game much more peripheral than people might like. Or when he's on the ball, you know, it's not necessarily his game is taking yeah. the ball down the left-hand side. And he he's not, despite some similarities in their physique and, and their pace and everything else, he's not as rounded a footballer as Thierry Henry was. You know, who you could absolutely play as a winger if you really wanted to, whereas Lacazette or Aubameyang is is much more of a finisher, a penalty box player. Yeah, I think I think the really interesting thing, and and I'll give Emery the credit for it because he's a he's a terrific football manager, and I assume that's the plan he had. But it, it almost uses Aubameyang as a kind of latent threat in that he stays on the left for for a while, which means that when he does drift in field and get close to Lacazette, and and their link up has, has again been better than I thought it would be. Um, it, it surprises an opposition. It, it, it puts them into a state of panic because you've got this incredible centre-forward, this incredible striker who spends enough time out on the left that that inevitably he, he drifts out the thoughts of central defenders' minds and then suddenly he pops up in, you know, he drifts in, in field, pops up in the centre and, and it's, a, it's, it's not a two against one, but there's suddenly two things to deal with and mm. that's what's worked for Arsenal. This kind of, um, it's almost sort of a, a surprise attack where he drifts in field, Mesut Ozil has the ball, he has two options, and we see goals like, you know, the one against Leicester is the obvious example, where suddenly everyone's involved. Um, and I think that, yeah, as I say, it's almost been used as a latent threat and used as a surprise tactic, which is quite, you know, for, for, for a manager who has only been with a club for, for two or three months, is it's pretty complex tactical work, and, and it's working. Mm. Well, look, as Arsenal fans, we have to hope that that, side of our game is strong uh, I suppose the thing is what he's got available to him from a defensive point of view may well inform what he does a little bit further forward that if he doesn't have a recognised left back is he going to be able to play Aubameyang on the left or is he going to have to put somebody who's maybe a bit more defensively minded out there similarly with Hector Bellerin a very key part of the way that Arsenal attack down the right hand side if he's not available you know what, what what's he going to do with the right hand side of of that attack so 
it is kind of it is kind of up in the air but big things for him to think about but I hope Arsenal can score the goals I'm not 100% confident we're going to keep them out but (laughs) we'll wait and see but Daniel we better leave it there thanks a million great to talk to you as always not at all thank you very much for having me you can follow Daniel on Twitter. He is at DanielStory85. That is at DanielStory85. And you can find him writing, well, all over the place now because he's a freelance guy. Just to point out that a bit earlier when I was talking about the Carabao Cup, I neglected to mention the fact that uh, we'd drawn Spurs in the quarterfinal. Uh, I should have mentioned that. I'm very sorry. But it is, of course, a little way down the line. It happens in uh, December, maybe around the 18th, 17th or 18th of December. So that is a bridge we can cross when we come to it. Unless, of course, the Tottenham have been put in charge of building that particular bridge, in which case it won't be finished. And we'll just have to stand around going, look, your bridge, it's it's not finished. You can't cross the we can't cross the bridge because you know you, you don't know how to build a bridge. What's that? You've taken another two hundred and seventy million pound loan to to build a bridge, eh? What's your debt now? Six hundred, seven hundred, eight hundred million pounds. That is a lot for a team, you know that wins fuck all, really. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Right. To get a Liverpool perspective on what's uh, coming up this weekend, on Saturday evening at the Emirates Stadium, I'm joined by a man who we had on during the summer. He was uh, on the podcast to talk about Iceland's World Cup adventure. It is Anton Svjenbjörsson. Hey, how are you? Uh, Very good. Well, look, you're here um, because you are a Liverpool fan. Arsenal are playing Liverpool this weekend at the Emirates. And uh, when we look at the league table... Arsenal are sitting just a couple of points behind Liverpool. I think it's, is it three points or four points? I have to have a quick look here. It is four points behind Liverpool, four Mm. points behind Manchester City. Um, How are you feeling about coming to play Arsenal at the Emirates at this point in your season? Unbeaten, you've only conceded four goals. What what are Mm. your thoughts? I mean, you must feel quite confident. Um, well, it's, uh, you know what they say, a week is a long time in football. And, you know, it was a, what was it, a last minute equalizer last last weekend that would have mm. meant that if Arsenal had won, then you could overtake us 
on Saturday, and now it looks like we can take a seven-point lead. So, again, week is a long time in football. Well, yes, it is a long time in football. But I mean, generally speaking, how mm-hmm. have you viewed Liverpool's? How have you viewed Liverpool's start to this campaign? You've uh, played ten, won eight, drawn two, scored twenty goals, conceded only four goals. And I suppose uh, if you're a Liverpool fan of uh, of long standing. That particular statistic, the fact that you've only conceded four goals, will be of great interest. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy that I can finally say this because of the good place that Liverpool are in at the moment. Because, you know, like most Liverpool fans, I think I spent most of my childhood being insanely jealous of Arsenal, especially during the Julia era when when both clubs had French managers. And mm. it's kind of strange how... Are like Liverpool are now the team that I always wanted them to be and used to be Arsenal. Used to be, I remember my like still this image I have of Arsenal is the is the is uh, what I think of as Julius last season. But you probably think of more as uh, the Invincibles. But that's <laughs> just a matter of perspective. It certainly is <laughs> because. Um, in both games, I remember we took an early lead. I think in the game at Anfield, it was Kewell. And in the game at Emirates, it was Hippia or the other way around. I don't remember. Yeah, it was Hippia. But, yeah, yeah. And Arsenal came from behind in both games and beat us quite convincingly to a point where I thought we gave it everything we had and we just came up that short. And I feel like that's... Maybe not where Liverpool are at now, but kind of, I feel like uh, I've talked about this for those of you who follow me on Twitter. I talk about that Klopp has really invested in, for the lack of a better term, Premier League history. He's trying to build teams like the ones that used to win the league year in, year out, like Ferguson's 2006 to 2009 and the obviously the Arsenal team like the signings this summer are like Fabinho and Keita which are players that not that long ago we would have seen at uh, United or Chelsea Chelsea yeah yeah. and now it's quite strange like we started last season with uh, with Henderson Wijnaldum and Milner in midfield and now we brought, I don't know what it was, 90 million worth of midfielders into the club and neither of them are starting at the moment. It's kind of a weird situation to be in when one injury to one player used to derail our entire season and and set everything back. But now there's this resilience and yeah, it's, uh, it's quite weird. Liverpool have under Klopp become everything I wanted them to be. They're quick and decisive, technically gifted, strong. And I think especially after signing Van Dijk, we have this mental fortitude of there's no fucking around, there's no getting upset, there's there's just some different, there's a shift in mentality. And I think, I think that's, from my perspective, that's beautiful to see. And I think that's 
you now have a feeling that you can win every game you go into, which mm. is do, great. Do, does that come from having a defensive platform or some defensive solidity that really hasn't been the case for a number of years? You know, center halves at Liverpool have been error prone. Goalkeepers at Liverpool, he had to put it mildly. Look, you know, this is a this is something that I think we uh, share uh, at Arsenal mm. or have shared certainly. Uh, goalkeepers at Liverpool have been error prone, uh, sometimes on the the biggest stage imaginable. I don't mean to you know bring up any bad memories for you or anything like that, but you know there is a reason why Liverpool went out and spent that much money on a goalkeeper this summer. So it, it does allow you, however good you are from an attacking point of view or from a midfield point of view uh, if you're playing with players who cost you goals week in week out or are capable of uh, costing you goals at any moment in any game it it's very difficult to build that kind of mentality where you feel like you can win because ultimately you feel like you've got enough quality to score goals but uh, at the at the bottom of that, you know that one moment could change the trajectory of a game in a huge way. Yeah, I mean, we saw this um, especially last weekend against Cardiff when after cruising to a comfortable 2-0 lead, we conceded at home for the first time since February. And then, you know, it's been, what, like eight and a half months and still this like panic sat in and I checked. <laughs> I checked Twitter after the Cardiff goal and everyone was just writing it off and saying this is going to end 2-2 and, you know, it's same shit, different season. And then it was just a simple substitution and then it was 4-1 and then it was just kind of over. And and it seems like the players are actually way, way further ahead than the fans because it's yeah. so ingrained in us. But to them, it's just... They've done little else but improve and mm. and uh, beat teams that are supposed to uh, knock them out. So it's it's kind of a weird shift that the club is now more um, or not more ambitious. That's uh, obviously far too big of a fan base to generalize like that. But that nervousness that shakes through the crowd seems to not affect the players. But. Yeah, I, look, it is. It, I think it, the word ingrained is absolutely right because, you know, we have it at, at Arsenal and have had it down the years where you can see how the momentum of a game will shift and you can almost or used to be able anyway to predict how we would react to that. So you concede one and you're a goal up and, you know, you know you're going to concede again because you can just feel it uh, flow through everybody and it has, it will take a little while, I think, for uh, for that to, to get out of people. As well as that, though, I think there is something, isn't there, within the football fan where however mm. optimistic you are or however positive you are, there's a worst case scenario uh, oh, mindset where you, you concede one and you're two one up and there's 20 minutes to go and all you can think of is well we're definitely going to concede again it doesn't necessarily occur to you that you're going to score again mm. I mean we had that and I think it's uh, it's quietly gone under the radar because we played them in the cup before but the Chelsea game was really for me more than the City game like where things are different because we played badly and our goalkeeper really kept us in the game which was weird 
like both Hazard and William both got through and somehow didn't put us to the sword. And then Sturridge came off the bench and scored that incredible goal from literally nothing. Yeah. And we've never really had that. And it's quite strange. And I remember watching the Chelsea game with this eerie sense of inevitable doom and that we started off well and there's only so far we can take this. And then we grab a point at the end and our goalkeeper was the best player on the pitch. And it just, it feels different and it's kind of fun. It's for the lack of a better term. It's, uh, it's so different that every week is kind of exciting. Well, when things change, it, it can get exciting. You know, when mm. something that you've hankered for for a long time actually comes to pass, uh, mm. there's something fulfilling about it. You know, so I think, uh, you know, Arsenal fans would be uh, equally keen to see a strong central defensive partnership, for example, something we haven't really had for a couple of seasons, at least when, when Mertesacker and Koscielny worked very well together. That was a very good partnership, whereas now we, we don't really have that. We're not quite sure who the parts are that make that up. Um, what, what are your thoughts on what's happened at Arsenal this season under Unai Emery? I'm not sure how closely you've been watching or anything like that, but just from the outside looking in, what what do you make of what's gone on since Wenger's left I mean, and everything else? I mean, I think it's market different in Arsenal and that's something that I wanted to talk about is that I, before the international break, the everyone's favourite expected goals said that Arsenal had scored 19 from an expected 10. Mm. And while it's always hard to gate such a small sample size that's actually quite terrifying to me because I always think that expected goals are the you know it's a useful metric but it also shows that you have the talent to do the or what should be impossible you're scoring at twice the rate you should be and that's terrifying for any team especially <laughs> at home or when we play away when you're at home yeah but I feel like uh, I mean Emery is a strange choice. I thought, personally, I thought what Arsenal needed was someone like Antonio Conte, for example. I thought he was, the, in my opinion, the obvious choice to take over as someone with the cult of personality and, uh, and someone who takes winning to an obsessive degree to a point that apparently no one can tolerate him for more than a few years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh... No, I mean, and, you know, he, he was living in London. He had the language down and I saw him as somewhat of a natural choice. But Emery has surprised me. He's, he's brought in. He's more pragmatic. He's more, I mean, every, I mean I'm not going to preach you on, on uh, Wenger's dogmatism. No. <laughs> because I think <laughs> you know it more than, uh, more than, you've forgotten more than I will ever know. But, uh, but there's more of a, I don't know, for the lack of a better term, there's a sense for the occasion. There's no more, oh no, it's Stoke. There's a plan. There's a, I even saw that they changed, I think, the set pieces on the training ground. They made them, they make the fake wall higher and they put way more powder into, <laughs> into making an explosive set pieces. And I think, you know, the Premier League with the TV money and everyone being able to run 12 kilometers a day, I think. 
marginal gains is the name of the game right now. And I think yeah. Emery definitely understands that at least seem on the surface way more than Wenger ever appreciated. Yeah, I mean, I you know, people were, were mocking a little bit, weren't they, the idea that Liverpool were bringing in a, a throw-in coach a bit earlier mm. in the season, but you talk about marginal gains and you talk about anything that gives you any tiny little advantage is surely mm. worth exploring as, as a football manager, as a football club. Um, you know, if you can find an improvement anywhere why wouldn't you do it whether it makes any huge difference or not i'm not sure i'm not sure really that being brilliant at throw-ins is what makes your team successful i mean it worked going back to stoke i suppose it worked a bit for Mm -hmm. for them and rory delap for for a little while but it's you know it's i think perhaps part of the culture of the Premier League right now, that everybody is looking for the thing that nobody else has, even though everybody mm-hmm. probably all, they all have the same stuff. Yeah, I think, that's, uh, I think that's a good point. And I also think that to some degree, I think the how bad the PSG job went somewhat works to Arsenal's advantage because I think everyone kind of underestimated Emery to a degree where... You know, he got the big job and then that didn't lead anywhere. So I think people underestimated him a bit. And I think, what was it, 10 games in a row, 11 games in a row now that you're undefeated? I think it's 12 games. It was uh, 11 wins, maybe 13 games now. I can't quite uh, get the number right. But yeah, yeah. It was, yeah it's, um, but I remember, like, I, you know, what's the life scores and you know, Arsenal just kept picking up points and it was something where they were playing the kind of, I don't know, for the, not to rub soft in the wound. I think both of us are sensitive enough to traumatic experiences to (laughs) not, not uh, throw anything needlessly around, but it's the kind of performance you usually saw in like March when the pressure was off, when, when there was nothing that could go wrong anymore, there's no big failure looming around the corner. And then Arsenal would like pick up six goals against Norwich or whatever. But now these games are coming in September and October and that's different. And I think, you know, we talk about marginal gains, but it's an extra four points before Christmas is something that could be the difference between Champions League qualification and no Champions League qualification or you know, further. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be the aim this season for Arsenal is to finish in the top four or win the Europa League or both. So we'll see. Um, I mean, if you want to win the Europa League, you've got the right guy. Yeah, well, that's very true. <laughs> Three in a row at, at Sevilla. And, you know, just to just to sort of talk a little bit about the PSG job, I mean, the perception is that it went badly. But he did win mm. the treble in his final season. He did win the cup, I think, in his first season. And Monaco won the league uh, in the first season he was there with the second highest ever points total in French uh, league history. So, look, it didn't go as well as he would have liked, I'm sure, particularly in the Champions League. But, you know, you have to take into account it is, as a football club, uh, fucking oh, insane. Absolutely. Insane. And that's what I mean. I think that really, like, helped him in a way because... Yeah. 
he has now dealt with the extreme. So even whatever the situation is, he just came from Neymar. So he's probably just yeah. fine with <laughs> yeah. stamping his authority on on Ötzil right now. Seems like, uh, you know, walk in the park and yeah. <laughs> uh, probably even very satisfying as I think everyone can see in his play right now. I think, in my opinion, he's Ötzil has had somewhat for not resurgence, but He's bounced back after the whole national team incident, which, I mean, let's not go there because we don't have enough time in the world. But Yeah, no, I think, I, you're, I think you're right. You know, I, the thing about Ozil is, for me, um, I think Emery's handled him really well this season, um, maybe trying to get a bit more out of him by upsetting him, perhaps, at times, which is fine. I think I'm quite fine with that. Uh, but mm. he, he is a guy who can do amazing things, as we saw against Leicester the other night. But I think as well, he's also a player who is somewhat dependent on the team around him performing also, that he plays his best when Arsenal play their best. And that might sound a little bit obvious, but some Mm. players, uh, uh, you know, you can think of examples down the years who, when their team aren't playing that well, can take the game by the scruff of the neck or can produce a moment or a goal or or a tackle or something that gets everything going. I, I don't think Ozil is is that kind of a player. Is is he somebody that worries you ahead of this game? Yeah, definitely. I think, uh, I mean, the pace up front is the thing that scares me the most. I mean, as someone who saw <coughs> I said. 30, 35 meters away in Dortmund when Simon minulated a Cruyff turn on Aubameyang. And, <laughs> and I think, and if that took less than eight years of my life, then I would happily take that. <laughs> but <laughs> so I'm the pace of Aubameyang, especially in Mkhitaryan, I just, it's burned into my skull for the rest of my life, that terrifying pace coming at you. And I think... I think it could be a high-scoring game, and I think. Yeah. But, but the flip side to that is now City possibly setting the template of how to play Liverpool. You sit deep, give them the ball, and then try to break on transition, hmm. which, which under Wenger would obviously never have happened. I think we saw that. I mean, what is it now? Five years when, when you came to Anfield and. Yeah. And we were pretty much, I think, Four one up. or two points apart in the league. And then, yeah, and then blew them out of the water. And there mm. was just, and there was this sensation that Arsenal kind of got off easy. And I don't think that's going to be the case anymore. Maybe, maybe the transition isn't fully there, but the, but the high line and fullback shooting forward before blinking and I don't think that's going to happen and the thing it's going to actually be fascinating because I don't know I mean I've been watching football since I was five in 95 so you know at the age you know all my life I've known Arsenal as Wenger's team and it's kind of weird and bizarre that this is going to be the first time where you ever go away to Arsenal that I don't remember seeing or not going to see Wenger on the sidelines. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the approach to the game is going to be very interesting. You know, the Man City template, as you talk about, I don't think that's something that Arsenal can do. 
I don't think we can sit back and let Liverpool have the ball because we're not good enough defensively to cope with what Liverpool have got up front. So I think Arsenal need to be a bit more proactive or a bit more progressive in the game. But we have a lot of injury problems at the back. We don't know if we've got a left back yet. We don't know if Hector Bellerin is going to be fit yet. So those are issues and those are things that Unai Emery is going to have to cope with uh, that will dictate how he how he approaches this game. I, I agree with you entirely that I think it is going to be a high-scoring game. I say that now is going to be nil-nil, but uh, I, I think both teams have got so many goals in them that there's no way this one is ending uh, in a low-scoring game. And it just depends whether or not Arsenal can defend well enough to cope with what Liverpool have got and uh, based on what our attack can do against a defence that is relatively miserly in Premier League terms so far this season. Yeah, I think uh, I think a lot of it will depend on who starts. I mean, the natural choice for us seems to be Joe Gomez, just because he is way faster than Lovren, if for nothing else, and probably mm. will play. In my opinion, I think another one who will probably get the his first proper start, in my opinion, will be Fabinho. I think he's the he, uh, I think someone described him as a, as an octopus. It looked like he had eight legs against Cardiff. He was running all over the pitch <laughs> and making tackles everywhere he went. And mm. or uh, Red Star, sorry, I got my mid game, midweek game mixed up. But I think um, I think it will definitely be a high scoring game. And and actually, for me personally, I think the. Ramsey contract news could not have gotten come at a better time for us because I think for whatever reason he has his his day in the sun against us he's scored a lot I think he's the player I would fear the most in terms of um, in terms of our new midfield I think Ötzel will definitely be almost man-marked because I think the key to stopping Arsenal is to stop him feeding the the pacey players in behind. And I think that's where all of Liverpool's focus will be. And like you said, with the fullbacks, because we, as anyone who's watched Liverpool, we play a lot of through balls in behind for Mane and Salah. So, yeah. so hmm. you know, and... But we also don't know. I mean, we could see a complete complete reversal of tactics we could see Lichtsteiner mark, man marking Salah or <laughs> or any, anything of the sort I think uh, yeah it's going to be interesting to see but I think Arsenal's pace and especially the form of Lacazette and Aubameyang should worry anyone whether regardless of affiliation I think that I think weirdly enough that's the kind of system that should have thrived under Wenger but didn't and I think the more pragmatic approach is really paying off. And Arsenal have surprised me this season, I have to be honest. Okay, well, look, I, you know, obviously I hope we surprise you again on Saturday. <laughs> but uh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll wait and see. Um, we better leave it there, though. Anton, uh, good luck for the rest of the season, if not necessarily on Saturday. And yeah, uh, look, we'll, we'll catch you soon. To you. <laughs> All right, man. Cheers. <laughs> okay, cheers.
Anton is on Twitter at Anton Stottle. That is at Anton Stottle. So uh, give him a follow if you fancy. Right. Well, I mean, what else is there to say about this particular weekend, this game against Liverpool? One which I think is a marker in our season. Uh, The next couple of weeks, maybe the next month or so, is going to tell us a lot, I think, about where we are and where we're going and how much progress we have actually made under Unai Emery. Uh, you know, we have made progress this season. I know not everything has been perfect, but when you compare our record away from home this season to our record away from home last season, there's an improvement. Uh, We're winning games against teams that we should beat. The next step now is to take something from games against teams who have traditionally, or certainly in the last number of seasons, caused us an awful lot of problems. You know, our record against the big five, the big six, whatever you want to call it, uh, hasn't been particularly great. We've lost against Man City already this season. We've lost against Chelsea. Uh, and we can all understand that. I think we can all put those results in a little bit of context. But what we need to see now, I think, is the ability to get something from a game against a team like Liverpool, particularly at home. As much as taking 22 points from 24 will give fans and the players and the team confidence getting a result against Liverpool, however we get it, and whatever result it is, of course, I'm talking about a win or a draw, and I I would be okay with a draw at home this weekend against Liverpool uh, because of how good they are from an attacking point of view and how iffy we are defensively. I think a draw would be a decent result. Um, Of course, it depends on the context of the game. It depends on who we have available at the back. Uh, you know, a draw with a back four of Licksteiner holding Socrates and Xhaka or Maitland Niles would be a fantastic result. Whereas if we did have players fit and ready and in their natural positions, and uh, you know what I'm saying, though, it really does depend on what happens on the day and what happens on the training ground and everything else. Either way, you know, to come away from this particular fixture with uh, a point or three points would be something I think we can be happy with because it would show that we have made a certain amount of progress when it comes to these games. There's two more coming up in inside a month as well with Tottenham and Manchester United, games that are going to test us and push us to our limits far more than playing you know, the likes of Cardiff and Newcastle, etc., etc., with all due respect uh, to those guys. It's going to be fascinating to see how we perform and what way Emery is going to approach this game. He can't sit back and defend. You just can't do it. Not with the defenders that we have. If you have a world-class defense, then maybe you could give that a go and look to hit them on the counter. I don't think we can bank on keeping a clean sheet in this particular game, so we do have to focus something on the attacking side of our game. Um, and midfield control and the front four and everything else will be really important in that regard. So I'm very curious, very interested to see how it's going to go. I'm actually going over for the game this weekend, which I'm excited about, going with the mug smasher himself. Not that it's relevant in any way, but Liverpool don't really have the greatest record when he goes to the game with me. So let's keep fingers crossed for that. Not that I think it's... It's down to him. Although, no, no, that's a straw that I'm grasping at there. Um, Anyway, we'll have a fun time, I'm sure, one way or the other. Hopefully one of us will have a more fun time than the other one. And by one of us, I mean me. Uh, but I'm magnanimous enough to buy him a beer afterwards if if things don't go our way. Hopefully we'll see a few of you in the usual place to have a, a beer or two pre-game and post-game. 
James and I will be here on, I don't know when, maybe Sunday or maybe Monday uh, for the Arscast Extra. I'll keep you informed on Twitter, at Arsblog on Twitter, if you're not following already. Um, so we'll uh, we'll announce them when we're going to be doing the Arscast Extra. And next week, I will have a little bit of a bonus podcast for you as well, midweek job. Uh, I spoke to the author of a brand new book about Unai Emery. It's called El Maestro. Romain Molina is the author. We had a good chat about that, so I'm going to put that up early next week as well. So some extra podcast action for you. Uh, in the meantime... Have a great weekend. Let's keep fingers crossed for the right result on Saturday, and we'll catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. And finally, Ivan Gazidis has left Arsenal after nearly 10 years as chief executive to take up a new role with AC Milan. Chris Bumblecrack has put together this montage of his greatest moments at Arsenal. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.